it helps it helps when you have that kind of common shared bond mm-hmm. right that goes a long way toward helping to establish trust and I do a great deal of work with veterans. A number of my co-founders are veterans, and we do, we support a lot of veterans' causes because we find that veterans tend to generally have pretty darn high integrity, right? Generally have pretty darn high integrity. They've made a decision to put their lives on the line for something bigger than themselves, and that shows a lot of character as well. But we don't just invest in veterans. And lately, I've been really interested in investing in women-owned businesses because Women, number one, make great investments. And number two, they're underappreciated by the investment community. You're listening to the Engineer of Finance podcast with Ken Green. Please stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear boring yet important disclosures. Thank you. Hi, this is Ken Green, the host of the Engineer of Finance. And I'm excited to have a wonderful guest on today's episode. We've got Alex Chomp. He has a very expensive bio. So before I read some of this off, Alex, say hi to the audience. Hi, Ken, and thank you very much for inviting me to be here. It's an honor. Yeah, thank you. It was a treat having you on. And it's just literally pages. And I was asking Alex before we started the recording today, this is a lot of jobs. This is a very extensive career. And I thought it was wonderful. He said, my most important job is being a husband for 27 years and a father of five. And I would say, agreed. I haven't been married that long, but plan on being married forever. And so my wife's awesome. And I've got a great stepdaughter, early 20s. And I got my beautiful son who is seven years old. And it is absolutely the most important thing to me. So that's uh, wonderful. And Alex, you're great age. He's a lot of fun. I want to keep every year a great age. (laughs) So I just got back from a business trip in uh, Nashville, Tennessee for just to keep sharpening the saw and learn more and more so I can help. And yeah, that little guy doesn't like when I leave, but it's great coming in at midnight and giving a kiss before I lay down in bed. Now, your background's pretty extensive, and so I'm really excited about this uh, conversation. You mentioned, hey, most of the work you do now is pro bono, which is, is incredible, but you served in the United States Marine Corps as a security chief for nuclear weapons installation. You supported United Nations humanitarian efforts, 50,000 Haitians and Cuban refugees. You have quite a background in the doc com and dot com dot boom business dot com boom it was silicon valley doing a different venture capital firms nature you co-founded nature track you've processed over two billion in risk managed transactions for the cannabis banking sector unbelievable and blockchain technology mentors labs it just goes on and on i'm just gonna have your whole bio and and the show notes so people can see it but i am curious and you're an angel investor i am. yeah and we got so many areas might have to, to somehow Kanye to come back on the show a few more times, Alice, because we can go down so many different rabbit holes of what you've done as a community. Oh, and before we start the recording, we have a little bit of overlap and background. You mentioned that your father was an outside plant manager in the, telecom- in the telecommunication yes. industry. So you have some experience in that side and you've done some work on the civil engineering piece too. I've tried not to get in the way. Let me put it that way. I was lucky enough that my, so as you mentioned, I, I am a former Marine. My father is also a former Marine. As it happens, we have a long military tradition in our family. My wife's father was on the Army rifle team and my wife's brother was in the 82nd. And yes, I followed my father's footsteps in a number of ways. And 
one of the things that my father did as I was growing up was he worked for AT&T and then later Pacific Bell after the divest as, yes, an outside plant manager, an engineer. He was one of the very first local area network engineers trained by the phone company because if you've been around long enough that networking came from the phone services originally. And so I had the good fortune to grow up in and around central offices and around wiring. And my father's also an entrepreneur. He started his uh, first business with his first patented product in the 1980s. And that business is still going today. And thankfully, it's going to be sending my oldest to college this year. So thanks very much, Dad. I appreciate that. Now, did you grow up in San Francisco? I grew up, all the really important years were in Concord, California. They were in the East Bay. And for any of your listeners who might be familiar with the Bay Area, there's this wonderful public transportation system called Bay Area Rapid Transit or BART. And BART made it possible for anybody in the East Bay to be in and out of San Francisco and Berkeley and Oakland as much as they wanted. And so I really had a great fortune of gr growing up in a, a wonderful suburban community and having access to the big city. Now, is home still Concord for you? or No, these days my family and I live in El Dorado County in Northern California, just past the edge of Sacramento County. Yeah. El Dorado County is a very wonderful place to be. It's pretty sparsely populated. About 60% of El Dorado County is national forest. So it's a very suburban and, and rural area, which we really enjoy. It's perfect. It's, you're just buried in the trees. I think it's a beautiful area. And so it's rural. Not rural, rural, but it feels rural, right? Yes. It's that nice mix. They always say in California, the beach is an hour away and the mountains are an hour away. But we're in the foothills and Tahoe really is 45 minutes from us. And if you want to see the water, it's a little bit further the other way, but you can do it in 90 minutes, two hours. So it's, yeah. it's and I'm just on the other side of the hill. I'm a little tax, income tax adverse. <laughs> so I'm on the other side in Nevada. So I'm about 30, 40 minutes from Tahoe. And, and that's cool. typically home for us on the weekends to go play because it's, it's such a beautiful area. And I think people listening, especially in the back east, I haven't experienced the Lake Tahoe, the area or the Bay Area. It's really just, it really is God's country. It's gorgeous. And so you growing up in Concord, so going to school, did you go straight into the Marine Corps after graduating high school? Did you go to college? How did that work? Yeah, that's a really good question. I was, let's call it a moderately successful high school student, which is to say that I, I had several bumps in the road and it wasn't entirely clear that I was going to get my diploma. But thanks to the good graces of the principal and the staff, I did graduate. From, and I had the very good fortune at that time to be babysitting for a nice guy in the neighborhood who had a couple of sons. And he said, you seem like a, a smart kid and maybe you need a summer job. And he was right, I did, because at the time I was washing dishes at Burger King. I washed dishes at all the finest institutions, Burger King, Carl's Jr., Us Pizza. I washed dishes as a career for several years. And uh, this guy said, why don't you come down to San Francisco and I'll give you a summer job. And he turned out to be the project manager for the largest West Coast renovation project in history at the Sheraton Palace Hotel. He was a civil engineer, as you are. He was a civil engineer by training and trade. And he let me, he gave me my first professional computer, a 286, and the Lotus 123 Bible and a, a stack of manpower reports that was about five feet tall. And he told me to make a graph. And about a year later, I was something of a whiz on spreadsheets and I had a graph for him. And then in 1991, I joined the Marine Corps. and. When I came home in 1995, 
my skill with computers translated very well in the Bay Area. I met my wife almost immediately. We got married pretty quickly and it was necessary to provide a living. And so I started by, first I started off at the family business pulling cable. And then I set up a network services business out of the back of a truck and learned an awful lot at other people's expenses. They were very kind to me. And from there, I found my way to the Valley pretty quickly. I remember there was a, an economist magazine that said they're making millionaires in Silicon Valley. And I showed it to my girlfriend who was going to become my wife. And I said, hey, millionaires in Silicon Valley. And what we didn't really know was that Silicon Valley was only 45 minutes away, was one bridge. So as soon as we figured that out, we were like, oh, oh, okay. So we, we went to Silicon Valley and I, I've tried to always make it a habit to answer the phone and say yes whenever possible. And so from there, I launched into a career that was uh, quite remarkable and mostly luck. So I'm very fortunate. And that career that was remarkable, mostly luck, what, what was that specifically? Programming, coding? I did study computer science, community college, and I was able to code. I, I can code. But what I actually learned was that some people code beautifully and brilliantly. Mm -hmm. And I'm a competent coder, but I'm not a beautiful, brilliant coder. And I want to be brilliant at what I do. So I found that my sweet spot is actually speaking the language of business for technologists and speaking the language of technology for business people. So I exist in that space between those two. And some of my friends over the years have called me Captain Spreadsheet, thanks to that, that job at AJ. I, I tend to do work that involves spreadsheets. That's probably the easiest way to understand it. To, to a non-technical person, I look very technical. To a technical person, I look like a, a dangerous businessman. And so that's probably the easiest way to put it. I'm really in the business side. Today, most of the time, I spend my time helping people to understand how to put together new companies, how to finance those companies, how to structure things that, so, so that they're equitable and so that you can have rapid growth without collapsing for lack of process. So all this education, truly higher education through getting paid to learn, you came back, you got a phenomenal education, obviously, through just being surrounded by your parents, entrepreneurs, that way. Then what a gift. Now, I am curious on Clayton Valley. What was the struggle for you? Obviously, you're intelligent and you're driven. What was the issue with high school? Like, why was it such a struggle? Number one, being a teenager is not easy for anyone. I'm sure most people remember their teen years as something of a struggle. And I was a pretty awkward teenager. So just I, figuring things out? Yeah. Yeah. F figuring things out. You know, what? in my home, in my family home, both of my parents are immigrants and they're both good people who, want, who wanted to do the right thing. And the mismatch between their expectations and my expectations and society's expectations created a lot of conflict. And so I had to learn how to navigate those things. And I didn't really get the hang of it, oh, until a couple of years ago, probably. So- I mean, I've been struggling with it most of my life. I would have to believe four years serving the country and the Marines probably created an incredible amount of discipline and structure. The Marine for you. Corps was very good for me. A absolutely. I had a very positive experience in the Marine Corps and I learned a great deal about how to be an adult and how to be a citizen, and how to be a contributing member of society. And definitely the Marine Corps is known for its discipline and the infantry is especially. And then working on nuclear weapons tends to be fairly 
I didn't work on the weapons. I was in the security side of things, but it, it tends to be fairly exacting. And that really appealed to my nitpicky nature. Were you around like the, not, were you around the subs? Or were you around all the installations? I started off as a security guard at a nuclear weapons depot on a military base in Southern California. And I started as all weapons guards do with the most mundane of jobs, essentially walk, walking the parking lot and counting cars. And eventually you find yourself inside the wire, as they say, and you work your way up from what they call walking the boulevard until eventually you're inside the pillbox that's inside the wire and you're pressing the buttons that open the doors. And from there, I was very fortunate to be selected to become the security chief for that weapons installation. And so that was the last thing I did there before leaving for the East Coast, where I spent most of my time in Guantanamo Bay, working with uh, both Haitian and Cuban refugees. And then you left the Marines, you come back to you, your, your soon-to-be wife, right? Right off the bat. Right. Then you say, hey, I want to be a millionaire, go to Silicon Valley. And so now you're thrust in a whole new world. And was that straight off as being an entrepreneur? You said, but where is this like, hey, you're getting jobs, you're being hired to do things. What, what did that look like? In retrospect, it was all pretty entrepreneurial. In so you're just self-employed right off the bat? To be honest, I was employed by my family business. Right? Oh, okay. Remember, my father had a, a product that he had patented in the 80s. Would it, can you share what he patented? Sure. For anybody who remembers what a slide latch looks like on a cable, he patented a device that kept slide latches from becoming disconnected. And because the phone company had millions of cables and he originally offered the product that he had patented, it, it was essentially a kind of nylon toothpick. He offered it to the phone company and the phone company said, we don't manufacture, but if you want to start a business, we'll buy it from you. And so he retired from the phone company, patented that product and started selling it to the phone company. And since then, he's come up with probably another half dozen patents in the physical space for data centers. And today, companies like AT&T, various universities, Oracle, most of the big companies that you've heard of in that business, if they're putting together a data center, his products are in there somewhere. And his products are fantastically engineered to increase port density on racks. You get about 33% increase in port density without any additional cost. You get better airflow, et cetera. He's, he's got a real mind for wire. I learned everything I wanted to know about wire in about six months. So by the end of 95, I, would, I had moved on to network services. From there, operations management, I became the director of technology for a large venture capital firm. And I got the opportunity at the height of the dot-com boom to really see what today's household names look like when they got started. So that was pretty remarkable. Yeah. And how did you learn? How did you just start absorbing all this education? Like, how did you start? How do you go from serving the Marines or where did all this knowledge come from? Did you start reading, studying, mentors? Oh. I mean, how do you go create, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is like how in the world, yeah, you create one of the largest venture capital firms. Like how do you get no, no, there? I, I didn't create it. They were famous long before I got there. Oh, okay. No, I, I was hired as their director of technology in the late nineties, served okay. in that function until the early 2000s. So how did you get that privilege to get hired as the director for Kleiner Perkins Caulfield? 
and buyers? Like, how, how did you get there? So they uh, say, they knock on and say, hey, call. Alex, will you please work for us? Essentially, yes. It was a phone call. I, I received a phone call from a friend who told me that they were looking for someone. Actually, the, the company that handled that problem for them was looking for someone. And it's always been my habit to, to answer the phone. I'm, say yes. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about things. And so I, I like <laughs> to listen. And when people ask for help, if I can possibly do anything to be of service, I try my best. And so that became that position. And in, in answer to your general overall education, I read a great deal and I try to listen to people who are smarter than I am. The world is full of people who are smarter than I am. So I read quite broadly everything from, I probably take in 30 or 40 discrete articles on a daily basis. They range from the political to the economic to the technical. And then I do a great deal of writing. And if you live long enough, so one of, one of the advantages of not dying is that you accumulate knowledge as you go. So today I'm in my 50s and what you're really looking at is 40 years of reading and listening and, and talking to other people and trying to learn from what I can see. And then, and then there's this switch, you start applying it. And it's one thing to have this just data dump of information and mentorships, but also, yeah, applying it and, and putting it to work. And so literally some of these opportunities were just you answering the phone, saying yes, and through an incredible amount of study reading application, mm. that's how you started getting these different other opportunities that present themselves to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. We should never underestimate the power of mentorship. I've mm -hmm. had some great mentors over the years who have been very qualified human beings with lots of degrees and lots of experience and lots of connections. And along the way, so many of them have taken me under their wing and given so freely of their own let's call it social capital or intellectual capital, that I've really been able to take advantage of that. And so today I, I invest a great deal of time myself trying to give back because I think it's important to pass that kind of gift along. Oh, and, and you mentioned earlier, your gift was having the ability to speak the language between like in a way, bridge islands, like you understood yes. enough on both sides so that you could build a team, hence why you're a director of technology during the dot-com boom, but you were able to speak languages on all sides so you can take that team marching on a Ford, essentially. Is that yes. Yes. And, and again, to go back to the Marine Corps is one of the premier institutions in the world at creating great teams, at teaching how to build esprit de corps and how to really excel human boundaries through cooperative effort, right? We can do collectively things that none of us would ever be able to do individually. And so, again... Not only have I had great mentors over the years, but I've had many great people around me over the years who've been willing to chip into whatever harebrained idea I was working on. Now, I see you're very proud to be a husband and father. How did you balance? What was your work ethic like, hour-wise, commitment-wise? What kind of balance? This is very fascinating to me because I've been thinking a lot about this on my flight home last night, who my son is just everything to me. I usually try to take them on my business trips. We just couldn't. And just tears welled up in his eye that I was leaving. And I was like, how sure. do we do this in a way that we've got to create, we've got to produce, but we also have that balance. Obviously, a very driven industry, a lot of great thinkers, and just the, that whole ecosystem in the Silicon Valley, 
the amount of R&D, just all of it, it's just very impressive. Always trying to break, uh, I don't want to say glass ceilings, but just ideas, creativity and putting it uh, together and seeing what works and uh, finding out what doesn't work. A lot of things don't work, but what was that? What was your balance? Like, how are you, what were your hours? Sure. That's a good question. And o- over the years, of course, there have been many things, but I-, I will say that early in my career, when I, particularly when I came out of the Marine Corps and I was 23 at that time, and for the first decade, I was very devoted to work, very devoted to work. I, I would commute several hours a day. I would work a full day and I would do that six or seven days a week. And I was fortunate to have this beautiful woman, Jessica, with me, who was number one, willing to put up with that. And then number two, interested and curious and, and professional enough herself to begin getting jobs near where I was working. So we actually had the opportunity for some period of time to commute together. And anybody who remembers Bay Area traffic in the 90s knows that was no fun at all. So being able to sit next to your bride and decompress with her for a couple of hours in the afternoon and plan the day on the way in, that that was a real gift. And, And let me back up one more step. I've always had three priorities in my life, right? My, my family, my profession, and my education. And so my family has always been first. So even when it was just my wife and myself, that was always the first priority. And then I would try to balance my education and my profession behind that first priority. And then Jessica and I decided after we left Silicon Valley in the early 2000s that we wanted to do something different. So... She told me that she wanted to have five kids by the time she was 40 and we were in our early 30s. So it was time to get on the train and be part of the team or let this beautiful woman go to pursue her dream. So that was really what we did in our 30s was we really concentrated on family. And my career and my education necessarily took a backseat to those things. And then around the time that my youngest was out of diapers, which was like 2012, 13, 14, somewhere in that area. Jessica said that it would be okay for me to put my business hat back on and get to work thinking about business. And so that's when I started by first forming my own software company. And when I say my software company, it needs to be really clear. There were many people involved. There were investors involved. It was just my first time as a CEO raising money as opposed to being on the other side of the table with the check writers providing support to the companies that they they had written checks for. Right? This was my early, two, like 2014 was when I started taking responsibility as the CEO for the safe outcome of a company that was using investor money. And what was the first software company? The very first software company that I ever co-founded was a company named Goodies. And that company, Goodies, later became the co-founder of a company called NatureTrack in 2017. And Nature Track is a really tall pole in the tent in terms of demonstrations. And so I, I'm very pleased to be a co-founder and the first investor in Nature Track. And I should be clear, by the way, I, I've never been the CEO of Nature Track. That was that responsibility fell to my co-founder. Mm-hmm. And I've been there to provide support throughout the years. And along the way, I, I formed an accelerator and a venture syndicate, uh, became a member of the Sacramento Angels. And I have a friend named Sahil Kosla, and Sahil calls us investor operators. And I think he's right. So about once a year, I strap on my tennies and I take a trip around the track. Like most recently in May of this year, I got my developer key for an AI. 
And I'm just launched another platform called the masterverse.ai. And I'm lucky enough at this point in my life to be able to do it with in-house funds and with some friends. And we're delivering AI to everyday people a way that we think is really accessible. That's an example of something that about once a year, I'll start something myself. And in the meantime, I make investments with my friends or individually when I think something that I see is worthwhile. Yeah, I would say, I, Alex, please, can you come back on sometime next year? <laughs> it would be I'm fun. I'm service kit. Thank you. Because I'm already looking. I know I'm having a great time. I just absorbed this for hours. And it's just so fascinating to me how things start to interconnect. And, but anyway, I'm going to pick one area to run to. And then I want, I would love to have more conversations. The piece, because the AI part is fascinating to me. The angel investor part is fascinating to me because there's a very, I'll just make fun of myself. My tolerance for losing money is minimal. Like, I don't like losing money. Talking to, I just, I'm trying to get him on. He's an angel investor here in my neck of the woods. Just has done a lot to serve the community over his career. Has helped build a lot of companies and businesses and strong engineering background and MBA. And so one of these days I'll get him to come on because I think he has great stories to share. But just trying to understand his mindset with angel investors is like, he doesn't like losing either, but, and I'm just curious to your piece on this, a lot of these areas as angel investor aren't going to come to fruition financially. Like the money, it's, you guys do a lot of due diligence. You look at what's being presented. You obviously have a lot of experience. You've been there and you've done it. How do you weigh coming in? What's attracted? Obviously, there's got to be a lot of purpose behind it for you to money into it. There's got to be meaning to it, I would assume, and fascinate you guys and gals, but why, what are you looking at as an angel investor? What is something that attracts you guys to investing in something that, and I may am saying this incorrectly, but has a pri high probability of not coming to fruition? Sure. Sure. That's very reasonable. There, there are a couple of things you can talk about when you talk about angel investing, right? And ob obviously there's the financial component. So some people decide to become angel investors because they want to diversify their portfolios and they want to see a section of their portfolio be higher risk and higher reward. And the, the math is pretty clear. The data is pretty clear that somewhere between 50 and 70% of the investments that you'll make as an angel investor, if you participate in early seed stage or pre-seed stage companies, will trend towards zero. You will tend to not get back the money that you put in. That it's just a point of fact. I happen to have a little bit better score than that so far, but knock on wood and what was my grandmother who said, God willing and the creek don't rise. When you think about angel investing from a financial perspective, it certainly can be rewarded. A well-diversified angel portfolio can return north of 20% IRR. And if you have a couple of what we would call winners in there, and a, home, a winner might be some Home something. runs. Yeah, home runs. And you can see significantly better than that. But if you're just looking at it from modern portfolio management theory, you need to be prepared to see something on the order of 50% or more of your investments trend to zero. And that means that it's necessary to have a very broad base of investments. So one of the, one of the implications is that the more times you have it backed, the more opportunities you have to get on base. And so it's important then to diversify your interests. And for me personally, angel investing is 
at least as much social as it is financial. And it's my experience that most angel investors can't help themselves. They're just kinds of people who have to get involved because it might make more sense really to just put your money into index funds and go play golf. Like you'd have a lot more free time. And you'd probably do with, just with, well, with, with moments of volatility. <laughs> you have to, in my mind, to be a successful angel investor, you, you've got to be doing it, sure, for the financial component, that matters, but that can't be the principal component because any financial payoff in the angel world is typically five years or more away, first of all. So it's a very long time horizon. And if you if you want to feel satisfaction as you're going, I think you have to find your satisfaction in other than financial ways. And so for me, it's the opportunity to be of service. It's the opportunity to help other entrepreneurs as people have helped me over the years. It's the opportunity to grow my community, to be around brilliant, passionate people. This is very exciting. I have found through my 50 some years on the planet that I have a reasonable ability to see where the ball is going to be in three or four bounces. And so I like to be first. That's one of the, so it's a big kick for me to be first into things. Early so, adopter. Yeah. It's fun to be the first person to do something. I, I really enjoy that feeling. And there's financial components. Sure. There's more importantly, in my mind, a social component. There's a, the opportunity to be of service, the opportunity to give back, the opportunity to build a community. I think to me, a, a life well-lived will not be measured solely in financial terms. It'll be measured in the size of your network and in the number of people who say, hey, you know, that guy, he believed in me and he made a difference and he trusted me with his money and he trusted me with his time and he trusted me with his network. And I just want to say thank you and pass it along to the next person. That to me will be the ultimate satisfaction. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. Because I, from, you're obviously really in that world. I just see it from the sidelines. And, but that's what I saw is that the money part, the rate of return financially was ancillary. It was more about, yeah, it's interesting language, trends towards zero, <laughs> trends towards zero, but, but you don't want to lose, I would assume, but being a part of something, investing in something special that you believe in that in regards to that, but also you don't want it to lose either. If you could have a higher batting percentage, why not? What are you looking at, at that kind of level? What are some of the fundamentals you're looking at? Are you looking at just the people on the team, what this is about? Sure. How are you looking at where this, what are some of the kind of key things that you're looking at well, where you say, hey, I'm going to risk very, my money in this? Yeah, we do have a very specific set of investment criteria that we consider, particularly when we're investing other people's money, mm -hmm. right? So there's a difference between an angel investor only invests their own a money manager or a professional manager like at Evolution Ventures, where we syndicate deals, we're investing other people's money. So the, the duty of care is higher. When it's other people's money. Of course. Yes. So there, there is a very defined set of standards that we use to evaluate companies. And we make those standards available for free to anybody who's interested. You can find them on our website. And they're the things that you would- Which expect. website is that, Alex? Acceleration.com, evolutionacceleration.com. So just go to the entrepreneur section and register for the class. You don't have to, to take the class. We've just 
So by way of background, having done this for many years, Ken, I decided to create a class that teaches people how to be in the top 20% of the companies that are fundraising. And the mirror image of that is how do I pick the top 20% of the companies that are asking for my money, right? I've created a, a class and made it available and we provide it to the public in an electronic online format. And we charge $49.99 for it. And that's just because we used to give it away, but people wanted to pay for it. They, they value it more when they, they pay for it. But let me- Is that amazing? By the way, yeah, years yeah. ago, I used to hand out books to prospective clients. Like in order for me to talk to them, they had to buy the book. And I used to give it out for free. Yes. And then I had to start charging them for the book, not because I cared about 10 or 20 bucks. That wasn't the point. But it isn't amazing when we put value to something. So a whopping $49.99. So people take it a little bit. I know everything that we know. And I'll go one step further, which is to say I would never, ever gatekeep knowledge for money. So if anybody who ever listens to this now or in the future, for whatever reason, you got family to take care of, you got kids, whatever the reason is, that doesn't work for you. You let me know and I'll send you a code and you can have it for free. Okay. But that class is available and it covers all the things that any experienced angel investor would tell you about. What's the quality of the team? What's the size of the market? How is the team going to take this? product to market? What's their intellectual property framework going to look like? What do their financials look like? They're, they're really all the things that you would expect. And so I don't want to spend too much time on those because I think where I personally make a lot of my decisions, and I want to share this with your audience, is I don't invest in anybody that I wouldn't sit in a foxhole with overnight. So if I wasn't, if I'm not willing to sit in a foxhole with you, if I wouldn't trust you to watch my back, then I'm not going to write you a check. If you're not the kind of person that I would be willing to be in close quarters with, I'm not going to write you a check. And especially when you're involved in the stage of investing that I'm involved in, which is pre-seed and seed level. So I'm usually the first or second investor or when I say I, but again, you should hear every time I say I, you should hear we, because there's no I in this, right? There's a lot of people involved. But we are usually the first or second investors into a company. We will frequently invest before the company is even formed. Oh, wow. So there's, it would be madness to think that there are going to be clear financial projections. Very often, the product market fit is yet to be determined, right? So what we're really investing in is we're really investing in people or investing in teams. And one way to think about angel investing is buying a seat at the table with the people who are going to change the world. Because just because 50% of your portfolio trends to zero, those people don't go away. And now you have people that you've been working with who you've put money behind and who you've put time behind and who you've built relationships with. And when the next opportunity comes along, whether it's in my domain and I'm asking them to participate or it's in their domain and they're asking us to participate, that's really where the magic begins to happen is in this network of people that have all put money, which is important, but even more important than money is time. Time is the one irreplaceable resource, right? They say in battle, Ultimate. there's two components, right? Space and time, and you can get space back. Time is what matters. And the older you get, the more you know that. And I don't spend time on people that I wouldn't sit in a foxhole with. Yeah. So when you were talking about closed quarters, so hey, obviously integrity, trust, you can rely on them, all those loyalty, right? Yeah. It's uh, very, 
interesting. How about personality wise? How do you vet if you like someone? Are you guys hanging out as investors? Are you, does it take some time to get to know the players? What is the typical decision process? How long does that take? Usually very quickly, I realize if I like someone pretty fast, usually with, within a minute, then the trust is really formed by actions, right? Does that make sense? So how, is there a secret sauce that one or is it eventually after all the fundamentals, everything you're looking at? Oh, by the way, thank you so much for creating evolutionacceleration.com because I always joke a test is easy once you know the answers. That's so right. you're giving potential companies the answers. That's wonderful. Yeah, we want people to know how to be in the top 20% because all that's going to do is benefit this world that we live in and this country that we're all a part of. It creates efficiency. You get time back from it. So you don't have to tell them to go back to the drawing board. But then right. I guess that frees up more time so you get to hang out with them and see if you really want to be in the foxhole with them too. Well, that's right. And I have two thoughts for you about that. One mm -hmm. is that due diligence begins at hello. So due diligence begins at hello. And investors don't invest in points, they invest in lines, right? So I'm not going to make an investment decision the first time I meet you or probably the second or third time I meet you. I'm going to make an investment decision after we have a series of points that forms a line and I can see whether that line is pointing up or pointing down in terms of your character and integrity and ability. Now, there are some things that help a great deal, like one of my very first investments through Evolution was into a company called Javelin Technologies. And Javelin Technologies is really interesting because it was founded by a former army ranger. And um, he had three combat tours and came home as a sniper for the rangers. And he had been home less than six months and he was taking a class on entrepreneurism or how to be an entrepreneur at a local community college. And I was there by request of the instructor to just provide some feedback and mentoring. And when this young man walked up onto the stage and said, hey, I've been home a couple of months. I'm a former sniper from the Rangers and I've completely changed the way body armor works. That was, we, we were 80% of the way to an investment. He, he joined our accelerator and, and later on we invested with him and that turned out to be a very worthwhile investment as you would expect it to be because this was a, a young man with a great deal of specific knowledge and discipline and capability. And anybody who's ever met a ranger knows that they're almost impossible to kill. This guy- Highly really confident at what he does. Yeah, but rangers are something to behold. Oh, no, that's, that, well, that's a great example, right? Very quick to form those lines it, on that it, investment. It helps, it helps when you have that kind of common shared bond, mm -hmm. right? That goes a long way toward helping to establish trust and- I do a great deal of work with veterans. A number of my co-founders are veterans and we do, we support a lot of veterans causes because we find that veterans tend to generally have pretty darn high integrity, right? Generally have pretty darn high integrity. They've made a decision to put their lives on the line for something bigger than themselves. And that shows a lot of character as well, but we don't just invest in veterans. And lately I've been really interested in investing in women-owned businesses because Women, number one, make great investments. And number two, they're underappreciated by the investment community. Many of my co-founders are minorities, members of different minority groups. I, I really am taking advantage of what other people overlook. God distributes intelligence and talent and capability evenly among his creatures. And 
So that means that there's lots of talent and intelligence and ability out there that's being overlooked by people who are only interested in Ivy League educations. I think I would love, I just looked at, I'm getting a little beep on my watch, which tells me I, I want to keep talking. It's just, it just starts getting traction and I think a lot of traction. Alex, the investment piece, I would say what you're sharing about looking at things are overlooked, thinking outside the box. And obviously you have a phenomenal education, didn't come from Ivy League, did it? No, I actually am the proud owner of a two-year degree from Sacramento City College, which took me 11 years and seven colleges. I started it in the Marine Corps and I did go to Davis for one glorious semester, but then my beautiful wife became pregnant with our first and I said, I'm going to have to put this aside. So now my plan is one of these days to have enough that I can put up a building on a campus and then... I'm going to ask the campus registrar to please just let me take all the classes that no one else wants to take. Whatever you're thinking about canceling, just give me that class and that I'll go to that one. And my wife knows that if I ever run away, it's going to be to the nearest library. Hopefully there'll be a movie theater, a coffee shop and a college campus. That's where I'll be ensconced until I, I shuffle off this mortal coil. We're going to have everything in the show notes about so your bio, your background, Alex. What would be for, for this episode, what would be the best way for everyone to learn more about your background and the areas you serve in addition to evolutionacceleration.com? Where would you recommend uh, listeners to go to to learn about uh, what you have your fingers in and how they might be a part of it or learn from you? Since everything you do is essentially pro bono now. Yeah. <laughs> I have a great team around me that helps me to stay active on social media. I try to share a lot of what I'm reading and thinking on social media. I try to share my projects out there. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, even Facebook. And you can certainly find a lot of our talks online. We're, we're pretty easy to find. And because there aren't a whole lot of people in the world named Chomp, it's fairly easy to find the things that I've, I've put out there. I do have one cousin in Holland with the exact same name, but I, I trust your listeners will be, will be able to distinguish between English and Dutch. That's good. I wanted to dive into the masterverse.ia and we're like short on time, but maybe like, how can we learn more about masterverse artificial? I have a variety of different opinions. I'm sure everyone does on artificial intelligence. I see how it could really serve this world. Sure. I think it could take us to a whole, but it's also going to full time at a rapid, things that took generations to occur could happen at a much more rapid rate. And so I think with any type of new technology, a lot of fear comes in, but also this fear of missing out. So we just hit the accelerator pedal because we don't, we want to be first, Alex. That's right. right? That's right. And so we created masterverse.ai to specifically help people who are curious about how AI works and how they can apply it in their everyday lives. We created it and currently it's all available for free. Where do we go for that? Go to www.masterverse.ai. Masterverse. Sign up for our newsletter where every day we publish the questions and answers that people are asking AI and the answers that they're getting. And we're going to be pulling a team of experts around to add not, not just the AI component, but what Coleman Zimes calls the inner or natural intelligence component and bring those things together because AI is a tool until it becomes a life form, which will happen. Okay. 
but between here and there, it's a tool. And so it's a tool that we should be using with a mind, with, with a specific intention toward building the world that we want to live in. We should be doing everything in our lives with an intention toward building the world we want to live in. And that includes using technology. So masterverse.ai is really there to help the 90 some percent of the people in the world that probably have heard of AI, but I actually know how it works or how they can use it. We really want to give them a friendly on-ramp by showing them how other bright, brilliant people are using it. And if you come join our group, you'll get to be in there with some key political figures. You can be in there with uh, some of the top wealth managers in the world, some of Ted's most famous speakers. These are all members of our masterverse.ai community. And you can see what kinds of questions are they asking. It's interesting, a, a very dear friend of mine who is, I won't give you the exact number because it'd make it too easy to find him, but let's just say he's in the top 50 wealth managers worldwide. He likes to ask questions like, how much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? And the answer is very interesting and funny. And <laughs> so you can really see how are some brilliant, beautiful people using this technology to improve their own world and to improve the world around them. And we want everybody to have that knowledge because again, we think that God distributes brilliance and beauty and the spirit and joy of life evenly among all the people of the world. And so we want all the people of the world to have access to these technologies so that we can build the world we want to live in together. Alex Chomp, what a great conversation. Thank you for what you've accomplished, what you've been a part of, what you're creating for others. Thank you for coming on this podcast. It's been an absolute blessing getting to meet you virtually. We're not that far from each other. So if you're, maybe one of these days we'll get to meet in person. I can shake your hand. It would be wonderful. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And everyone who listens and supports the show, thank you so much. I love having these conversations every week. I love being a part of the Engineer Finance Podcast. Alex Chomp, thank you so much. And I encourage everyone who's listening that you're by touch or fascinated by some of what Alex has shared. I do know very shortly, I'll be signing up with evolutionacceleration.com, paying the $49.99. And also, we'll have to share immediately with my wife and myself. We'll be jumping on masterverse.ai. It's uh, very fascinating. And well, we would love to have you there, Ken. And, and I have one thought I'd, I'd like to give to your listeners before I go, something that I like to share. Because a lot of people come to me looking for money. They're looking to get investment and it can be very challenging to get investment. And one of the things that I want to share with your listeners who might be looking for investment is that it can feel a little bit like you're in the hunt for gold, like you're panning for gold. And what you might not realize is that as the inventor, you are the gold in the gold mine. You are the reason that this entire infrastructure exists and funding would have no meaning without the work that you're doing. So. Don't get discouraged if you're looking for funding. Remember that you're the gold that we're all looking for. Keep on going. That's Thank you, Alex. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here, Ken, and I'm looking forward to seeing you and your wife in Masterverse. Hey, thank you. All right. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, everyone. Look forward to next week. 
This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. The content is intended for United States audiences only. Opinions expressed are as of the date of this publication, and such opinions are subject to change. Green Financial and Insurance Services Limited, Green, is not responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other claimed losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Green makes no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Forecasts are not a reliable indicator of future results. Investors should be aware of the risks associated with investing. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of capital. Investors should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile. Consult with a qualified financial advisor as necessary before making any investment decisions. Thank you for listening to the Engineer of Finance podcast with Ken Green. 